Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I'm a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers, though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Statutes are my delight. They are my counsel. Mm-hmm. Wow. My goodness. I didn't. It's Gimel. Gimel. It's camel, foot, gather, walk. Walk, because regel. Anyway, okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come here once again and to uh, meet and to share in your word, to just share a few moments with fellow believers. And we pray that uh, this hour and a half will be a blessing to whoever comes and whoever listens online or whoever watches later on YouTube, that maybe there'll be something that will help them with their walk with Christ. And we are certainly in prayer for our brother Steve, who hurt his back, and uh, we would pray that he would be okay through that. And uh, Lord, you know all the other needs that are out there, those are, that have been spoken and unspoken, and those that have been emailed. And Lord, just tend after your people. Look look after them, tend to them, care for them, and uh, just be with them in their times of trouble and trial. And we certainly thank you for every good blessing that you've given us. Lord, you are so good to us, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's see here. Hi, how y'all doing tonight? Let's see here. We have, you know, before we get into Romans 5, verse 3, I've just got to bring it up again. I bring it up almost every single class. I mention it at some point during the class, and I bring it up in sermons. I bet you I brought it up in five of the past ten sermons, and yet I still get emails on this. It's something that is such a poisonous infection that I really need to bring it up and just real quickly go through this is um, two emails this week on the exact same subject is uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement where people have been faithful Christians their whole life they've gone to church and all of a sudden somehow this infection of going back to the law gets into their mind and verses taken out of context and completely out of context and they get people going back and observing the law and the only thing you know I answered these people as best I could with showing from the book of Hebrews, which I've shown you many times, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. The law is obsolete, the law is annulled, the law is set aside. And there are other verses that imply it at least 10 times. The law is done, okay? Colossians 2.14, the law is nailed to the cross. Uh, Paul, we are not under the law, we are under grace. That's right, okay? And it goes on and on and on. The gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, and that's something we'll have to do on the board sometime, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are given to us for a specific reason. It's to show us that Christ came to do what? To fulfill the law. Thank you. That is the purpose of those. And when he says something about, let me read you, this is one of the verses, there are several verses that they they harp on. They get people scared about, and I got to tell you, when somebody emails me with this, I kind of think it's it's a hopeless situation because somebody has it in their mind that they must do this thing and pride steps in. I've made this decision and now I'm going to stick with it. 
they're not willing to simply read it. Because if you give them the verses that say the law is annulled, it's as if they're not even reading it. It's like talking to a Jehovah's Witness about the deity of Christ. It just glosses right over their eyes. But here's one of the verses that, um, uh, let's see here, where is it? I don't remember right off hand, but um, he's talking about the law, and he says... Um, uh, Whoever therefore breaks the one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, your uh, here it is right here, verse eighteen. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one tittle, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Okay, they say, see the law, not one jot or tittle is dropped from the law, and you must observe the law. Tell me, somebody here, what is the problem with that verse? It's Matthew verse uh, 518. It's written to the Jews, spoken by Jesus under the law. Okay, he's speaking to them under the law. And he says right here, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. And what did Christ come to do? To fulfill the law. I, I, I don't know how I can say this so to like, people. It's like an insult to the Lord. It is an insult, that. and that's why I say, if you say that that wasn't enough, that's... what are you telling God? It's it's an absolute insult to Absolutely. say that you have to do more than what he has done Absolutely. in Christ, because he fulfilled the law. That's the whole how purpose. Can they, how can they come back with anything? I, that? That's the problem. But I just wanted to address that again, is that when somebody gives you one of those verses, think about the context. Mm -hmm. Who is being spoken to? What dispensation, and why would he say something like that? And then what do they do? These people come in and they say, well, now we've got a contradiction in the Bible because Paul says, well, the law is fulfilled in Christ. Well, which one are you going to believe? Christ, before he's crucified and resurrected, talking about an issue to a people that doesn't even apply to us now, or are you going to believe Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit because he saw the risen Lord and he was given his commission in Acts 9, which says that Christ did fulfill the law? Right? There is a progressive thing going on in the Bible. And it's like people just stop. This is what Jesus said, and that's the end of it. Jesus was saying this for a specific purpose, to get people to think who are under the law that if you don't come to God through grace, then you are obligated to the entire law. And that's what Paul tells them in the book of Galatians. He says, the law is fulfilled. But these people are coming in, these Judaizers, and they're telling you that you have to be circumcised in order to believe. He says, if you do that, you are a debtor to the entire law. You've set aside grace. But I, I just don't know what to tell people when you give them the verses which are explicit. They say, this is what Christ came to do, and then you show what he did, and then you show what it says about him doing it. If they reject that, I, I really it's, don't know what to tell people. It sounds to me like they're not accepting that the that portion of the Bible wasn't written to them. That, I, I cannot understand how somebody can be in a church their whole life and say that they are saved by grace and then fall back on the deeds of law. But it's happened twice this week, and I thought it was important enough at least to remind you. Take them to Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Colossians 2, verse 14. And if you need those verses, email me, but I've got them, you know, I've read them in this class during the Romans at least at least seven or eight times since we started. It's something that is very, very important that we need to understand and, and Christ is the, the end of the law. What's that? The last few weeks has been a topic because this that, is specifically what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul so. is talking about. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. When you believe in Christ, he is the end of the law. So do these folks who write you, are they... They're scared for their friends. They, uh, I've been in church uh, with these people my whole life, and I need to know what to tell them. This pastor at their church, a Baptist church, 
decided he's going to have everybody sign a document before he gives them the Lord's Supper anymore. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, she didn't elaborate on it, but I imagine he's saying, you know, you're going to sign a document that you're observing the law or something. I don't know what it was. There was no elaboration, but I, I, I would leave that church I immediately. Say, that's what I, I would do. Yeah, right. I, mean, I mean, that's ridiculous. When you take the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, he gives the instructions why you take it and what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to reflect and then, you know, come forward. But there's nothing about signing a document or proving anything. That is an, a matter of the heart, and that's all it is. It's between you and the Lord, and if you don't take it in a worthy fashion, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep, as he says. But what was that, Burke? Eleven. Did I say fourteen? Yes. I, okay, I have fourteen on my mind for another issue I wanted to bring up later. But Hebrews chapter eleven. But people who want to work, they want to do. People, Charlie. They want to work. They don't want to trust in grace. They do not want to say what Christ has done is sufficient. They're going to show God that they are better they than God's Son. Ephesians two blows that out. Of the water. Absolutely, that it, it blows it out of the water. But people have a perverse streak in them that says that I can do better than Jesus did. God, I know better than you, and I'm going to observe the law, and I am going to be the one that sits at the top of the mound. When, in fact, they're going to be cast into hell. If they're not already saved, they will never be saved trying to be justified by deeds of law. Anyway, I had to get that out of me because I want people online to know that if somebody comes to you with this issue and you have problems with it, email me, and I will give you the verses that you need. But I honestly don't think it's going to do any good. It's just like talking to a person in the King James cult. It's just like talking to somebody that's in the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. They, they, they will see what they want to see. And unless they're willing to say, I'm going to trust in grace, I, I don't know how they're ever going to get out of it. But I will give you those uh, verses. So let's get into Romans 5, verse 3. And uh, What's that? We got the four. Did we get to four? I can do three just to kind of refresh. Did, did we, though? I mean... I'm pretty sure. I, I circled four. Yeah, okay, we did. I... I I don't know why. We're in uh, Hebrews. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans 5, 4. But perseverance in both verses there. Well, let me check while you're, uh, just read from verse 5, 1 anyway. Yeah, sure. Because um, we want to do that. And what I'm going to do while you're doing that, I'm going to go to the last um, class just to sure. check it out. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by the faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Stop at the end of three. Okay, three is fine because that's where we are in three. Okay. Yeah, we are in three. I guess I was hopeful. That's okay. I put five two last week on there, and I, I'm certain I would have done that right, but maybe not. Maybe we didn't do it, and then we'll be doing five three again. I don't know, but that's what I put on the uh, the, the video. So good. Okay, so five three. Let me read that to, from this one, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Okay. No, I don't think we did that. I think I think we did stop there. Anyway, um, and the reason why is because it's kind of similar to uh, one Peter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. But anyway, um, verse 5, 3. This is a similar thought to what J James says in James 1, verses 2 and 3, which he said, uh, maybe we did do that. Did I read that? Right? I don't know. Let's see. I don't know. You, you, you guys have got to keep me on my toes here. Why am I going all the way back there when James is right James, after Hebrews? James what? 1, 2, and 3. Okay. James, a bondservant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Okay, you heard that. It says here, um, and not only that, but we know glory, uh, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So it's very similar to James 1, 2, and 3. Anyway, um, uh, now who was James written to? Read that again, verse 1. Oh, gosh, I just, uh, That's right, James, okay. a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes the which tribes. are scattered abroad. Okay, is that written to the Gentile-led church? No, we're no. not. We are not the Gentile-led church. We are Gentiles. We are, it is currently this dispensation, and I'll explain that again sometime on the board. The All of a sudden, you've got all of the Old Testament where the Jews are in, in the picture. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the Jews in the picture. Then you get this, this change in the book of John, which is there for a purpose, but it doesn't match what's going on in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you get into the book of Acts. And Acts goes from 1 through 12 with Peter, which is the apostle to the Jews. Jews right. And then you go 13 through 28, and that's the Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. There's a transition going on from Jew to Gentile. The Jews are going to be under punishment, okay, for the next 2,000 years. And so it goes to the Gentile-led church age. Acts begins where? What city? Acts begins where? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And where does it end? In uh, Rome. In Rome. So it's from Jerusalem to Rome, from the control of the Jews to the control of the Gentiles. And then the first book you have of Paul's, Romans. And you've got 13 epistles of Paul. The 14th epistle, which is certainly written by Paul, but is not named. And it's Hebrews. Who is it written to? The Hebrews. And then you have these books that are written from Hebrews, James, and then you've got Peter. They're written to the Jews, and it is a picture of what's going on in redemptive history. The epistle to the Hebrews, the epistle of James to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and the ones written by Peter, the apostle to the Jews, are actually written with the context of the end times in mind. The Bible is making a picture of redemptive history. Do you know what we did two weeks ago? We had pizza. You didn't show up, and I, I should have known. I should have known we had been. I know it. Unbelievable. So there, I just wanted you to know. Hi, Sandy. How are you? So um, we can see the similarity between uh, Romans 5, 3 and James 1 through 3. Okay. So not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is in verse 2, where it says, through him also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we do that, okay, but we further glory in tribulations, something that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to be glorying in tribulations, but here the word is ellipsis. And I, I, we may have done this verse already. It, at least in my mind, it sounds familiar. It carries the idea of pressure, such as being hemmed in in a small spot. Did I talk about a small spot no. last week? Okay, then it must be something that I'm... Anyway, so... Philipsis means to be hemmed in, like you're, you're constrained. Think of an animal that's in a cage and is trying to get out, okay? That's, that's kind of the idea. It's pressure from the outside. When we face trials, which would otherwise cause us to lose control, we can instead glory in them. Instead of being concerned about being in this box, we can say, you know what? The Lord's in control. We, you know, we could let the world around us literally drive us insane. We've got the world completely <laughs> Tearing itself apart. I was at the Toyota place getting my uh, five-year tune-up. I never go. So anyway, I did it today. And uh, I was in there, and I was talking to a guy, and he was just real friendly talking to me. And um, I uh, uh, 
he, he asked me a couple questions. Oh, he asked me about the bandana. And I said, oh, well, somebody from, he said, it's from New Zealand. He says, oh, you travel. I said, no, somebody from New Zealand sent it to me. And he said, oh. I said, yeah, they attend church with us. And they, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, we, we've got this church online. Oh, well, that's kind of neat. So we're talking for a while. And um, uh, after about 20 minutes or so, he, I can't remember what we were saying, but I brought in that we would be, um, uh, we do a prophecy update. I said, it's very popular. And I said, but if you're a Democrat, you wouldn't want to come. And boy, that guy just about lost. <laughs> he, he, he grabbed everything up and started to walk out. He did? And, uh, yeah. Oh, my. He just, and then I said, calm down. I said, I don't hate you. I said, I'm just conservative. I said, I, I, but he, he couldn't grasp that there is somebody in the world that doesn't hate Trump, that, that he just couldn't grasp it. He was just like going crazy. And I thought, <laughs> it, 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 the, everything changed when I said that. You, you were no longer. What? <laughs> What? Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd do good. But it, it, it's just we're in a world where you can no longer believe what you believe. No, you can't no. let people believe differently without it becoming a huge conflict, right? And that's why I tell people when people invite somebody else to the prophecy update or to the church, I always say, make sure they know about the update because if not, they're going to either be offended and sit here and stew for an hour or they're going to get up and leave in the middle of the. the don't do that to people. If you're going to invite somebody to this church, you let them know we're conservative, that we have conservative values, and that we don't like Democrats. Okay? And it's not that we don't like them. We don't like their attitude. Anyway. I, but, say, I came by myself, so no one invited yeah. me. Well, there you go. She came all by herself. And he did make that clear to no. me, though. Yeah. 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 Even before we started the update, I said, you know. And I said, I know I'm at the right spot. There oh, you go. There so you go. I just want people to understand that is that we're in a world where there is this outside pressure and that it seems like you're in a box. And the more you speak to people, the more the box gets in on you because you can no longer, yes. We love Democrats, we don't have to like them. I was kidding about that, that was a joke. I, yes, I, I don't hate Democrats. See, not everyone's getting your humor today. Yeah, well, that's okay, yeah. I, I, what did you call this thing? Thalipsis. Oh, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, Thalipsis. Yeah, anyway, so let's go on. No, seriously. What? Spell that for me. Yeah, T H L I P S I S, the lipsis. Okay. It's a Greek word. Okay. So, anyway, um, uh, where was I? Oh, I was talking about being hemmed in the box. We've got all of this pressure around us. And instead of letting that eat us up, because I know people that let this world eat them up, mm -hmm. they should be trusting in Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not unwise to know what's going on in around the world around you. It's not unwise to read news articles. It's not unwise to to be kept abreast of what's going on with Islam and with all of these, you know, the categories, for example, we go through in the prophecy update. But it is unwise to let that rule your life. We are told in Hebrews 12 too, to let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not the world, not the troubles of the world. And when we take our eyes off of the Lord and we start getting concerned about what's going on, we are the ones that suffer because those people are going to bed just happy. They may be stewing over the Republicans, but you know, or whatever, you know, whatever the opposing party is. But there's no point in you going to bed and being stewing over something that you have no control over. Sure. There, you should not do that. Anyway, fix your eyes on Jesus and let your glory in your glory in your tribu tribulations. Let your heart just be filled with Christ and it will take care of that for you. Anyway, um, so as the world falls around us, these are just my notes that I read every week. I, I type these up and then we talk about them from there. As the world falls around us, apart, uh, falls apart around us due to the external crisis which arise, we understand that God is in control and that these types of tribulation only serve us in a positive way. They produce perseverance. Okay, 
before I go on about that, what does the book of Revelation tell us is coming on the world? Uh, tough times. Tough times, tribulation, okay? So, we know that. Is that going to change with anything we do? No. Is there anything that we do that will make the book of Revelation not come about? No. no, of course not. The book is written. The plan is set in motion. God already has it all planned out. Why would we worry about what we know is going to happen? We, you can't change it. Why would we dwell on what Islam is doing in Manchester, England? Why would we do that? We can let it upset us. We can, you know, obviously we should be on guard. We should be careful about these things. But why would we stew over it as if it's something that we can somehow change? We can vote in the right person into office or we can. None of those things will work. The plan is laid out right. and what is going to happen is going to happen. There's right. it. Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying it's like uh, it, it's like I hear people say, you know what, if it wasn't for the Jews or the Romans, like Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. It's like that was the plan. That was the that plan. Was the plan. You're not going to thwart that. I mean, that, they could have all said, you know, oh, we don't crucify him. It's like, no. It was, that was the plan. That's right. right. And so you can't change God's will. It's perfect. That's right. It will end up good. We know how it ends. That's it's exactly like, right. So, so there's nothing that we need to do to worry about these things, and there's no point in blaming people. Now we can say, yes, the Jews did crucify Christ, but so did the Romans, so did Charlie Garrett, so did everybody else mm -hmm. on the earth. What we need to do is to reevaluate our lives and direct them to Christ mm -hmm. and say, I understand that I had a part in what happened to Christ and now I need to get right with him and accept what he did, even though my I had my part in it, accept what he did for me. And he will reconcile that to you. And that's what, you know, what going through these sacrifices in Leviticus seems like, oh, I can't take any more sacrifices. But if you've been paying attention to how they unfold, every single one of them points to a part of what Christ did. You've got this type of offering, this type, of, and each one of them is fulfilled in him. But every one of them had to be fulfilled in him in order for us to be able to fellowship with God. Every one of them. The, 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 the grain offering, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, or the trespass offering, we can call it, the peace offering. Every one of those is something that we actually are in relation to God needing in Christ. And so that's why we're going through those is because they all point to what he did for us. And without one, we wouldn't have the fullness of what we need to fellowship with God once again. Every one of them had to happen. And when we look at the cross, we can say it's all done in him. But you can't understand what the cross means without understanding what those Old Testament pictures pointed to. Anyway. Isn't that ironic, though? Um, there is no temple, and there are no ways of doing these sacrifices right that's now. That's right. They, they are hemmed in right now. Well, they what say they that, like you know what, though? They, they, they have written that off. The Talmud like says that you can do these, these righteous deeds, and you can do confession. and you, So they've written that off, and they say, well, that doesn't really apply. But that is a problem, and that goes right back to the Hebrew Roots movement, is these people say, well, I need to fulfill the law, and every jot and tittle of the, the law, um, not one jot or tittle will fall from the law until all is fulfilled. Well, if that's the case, then you can use that argument with them, and you can say, well, why aren't you in Jerusalem sacrificing? Mm -hmm. They will ignore it. They'll say, well, I can do my mitzvah, just like the Talmud says. But the Talmud isn't the law. It doesn't matter what you tell these people. They will always rationalize away their attempt to be right before God instead of trusting in Christ. So let's go on. Um, we got, uh, let's see here. Um, okay. If we feel that the world is out of control, then all sense of hope is lost. Okay. If, if we allow the world to 
say, I'm in control and I am out of control. I'm talking about the world saying this to us. I'm the one that's in control of all things and I am out of control. Then of course we have no hope. We have nothing that we can be grounded in because it's all just chaos around us. When this happens, we will look to who? Who will you look to for the answers if the world is our hope? Government. Government, that's exactly right. We're gonna look to the government or some other entity to secure us and to keep us safe. However, the Christian should understand that the trials and woes of the world around us are, as he just said, a part of God's plan. They're there as a part of it. Everything that is happening is something that is happening because God knew it would happen, and it is coming to the final point of fulfillment in redemptive history, where Christ will eventually return. Okay, first he's going to return for us at the rapture, then there's going to be seven years of heck on earth, and after that there's going to be Christ returning to rescue his people Israel. Okay, whether he causes these things directly or not, and this is something that you have to understand, I'm talking about the troubles in the world, or whether he merely allows them, all things are within his providence, and therefore we look to him as the source of our strength. That's why we can glory in tribulations, is because he is the source of our strength. It's not the world, it's not the government. I heard something today, I'm not going to get into it, maybe I'll talk about it in the Prophecy Update. I, I just... It, the world is so disgusting. It is so absolutely vile. And to think that there are people in the world that you pass on the street, that you eat at a restaurant and you're sitting next to them, and they have these thoughts in their minds, and they can brush away. I was listening to something on the radio as I was driving home today, just flipping through channels, and it was, I will say this much, it was a talk of Planned Parent people, Planned Parenthood people that they have on audio. And what they were talking about was so utterly vile it's it was so than, utterly it's vile. Different than what they already were. Uh, I, I, I don't. I have never heard this before, and it was so disgusting. But that was and pretty disgusting. It, it was really, really horrible, and I could not believe what I was hearing. And I'm thinking, you know, there are people that support this oh, all yeah. around us. I'm, oh, I, yeah. I mean, all around us. They would oh, yeah. say it's okay. Yep. What they're doing is fine. And to think of, if you were to say, I'm now going to go home, and I'm going to do, just describe. This. I'm going to do this to my puppy tonight. Okay? Mm -hmm. If I was to say that to somebody, they, yeah, they'd call the police and they would say, This guy says he's going to do this to his puppy tonight. Oh, you'd have people all over the it, world it, hating you. Unreal. No and yet, the way that they, they just dismiss what happens to these children, I couldn't believe what I was listening to. It was that bad. The wickedness in the world, God does not cause it. He is not the cause of wickedness, it's a secondary cause. He is perfectly good. Everything he has done is good. And the lack in the world that we perceive as evil is because of us, not because of God. Anyway, the difference here between looking to the government or looking to the Lord for our strength is wider than the seas. Looking to anything less than God for help in tribulation will not produce patience. Instead, it will only produce greater fear and loss of freedom. And we've seen that again and again and again. We have a bombing. And so what do people do? They see we need the government to do this. And so the government does that. And it doesn't work. And the people say, we need to do this. And it doesn't work. And people get more and more scared of what's going on around them. And they look to the same place again and again, thinking, well, it didn't work. We need to give them more control. And that's how governments gain control over people, is because of fear, because of manipulation. And that's what's happening in the world. Look what happened in, in England this past week, and look at what the people are saying about it in the news media. They're justifying this guy. He was, what? you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, they, are, they are saying that he was um, uh, 
upset about what happened in his home country of Libya. In other words, it's our fault for going in and bombing Libya, okay? They're trying to justify this, and when that happens, then the government will take more control, and they will take more control, and people will give up more freedoms. And this is where we have to remember that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in government. It's not in Donald Trump. It's not in anybody in... now. The Lord may use Donald Trump for a purpose. He may use Benjamin Netanyahu for a purpose or, you know, one of these people in one of these other countries. But that is not where we should put our hope. We should say he is our elected leader. We're, you know, looking for good things that he will do for us. But in the end, he's just a temporary guy and he's going to make fallible decisions. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. If we don't do that, we've got a real problem here. Anyway. It's got a life application for this verse. In the recent past, speaking about bombers, more bombers did their evil work. We need to look to the root cause of this and understand that it did not occur apart from God's sovereign knowledge. The perpetrators are no less guilty, but we need to be strengthened in the perseverance of our faith that God alone can bring peace to this troubled land. It's funny, I typed that, I don't know how long ago, and... Could have typed it last night. I mean, literally, could have typed it last night because that's what's going on in the world, and it's only going to continue. It's going to get worse. Justifying that guy's crimes by saying that he was upset about what he saw when he was in Libya does nothing to solve the problem. It does absolutely nothing. And if you put your trust in government to take care of that kind of thing, the government is the problem. I hate to tell you, it's it's getting worse, not better. So anyway, go ahead. Verse 5-4. Perseverance, character, and character hope. Okay. So he's building a train of thought. I'm going to go back to verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're hoping in the glory of God, okay? And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. We say, I understand these things going on around me are bad, but I'm going to persevere because my hope is in God, right? And then he says, in perseverance, which we just got from glorying in tribulation, that produces character, and character produces hope. If you're trusting in the government, you're gonna develop none of those things, absolutely none of them. You're just gonna get more scared when the next thing comes along. Now, before we go on with the analysis of verse five, four, I'm just gonna take it, because I mentioned it earlier, it's very similar to 2 Peter 1. It's a passage I like to remind people of from time to time, because it shows you a logical progression of what you should follow in your walk with the Lord in order to be grounded, and it shows you the consequences of not following in that walk. 2 Peter 1, verse um, 1, uh, I'm going to take it from 2 through 9. Um, Now, remember that he is writing to the Jews, and it's in the Bible in a position which says it is actually being written to Jews of the end time. Now, you need to remember that because we're going to be out of here by the time this really takes effect. But all scriptures God breathed, and it is useful and profitable for instruction and, uh, you know, training in righteousness that the God, man of God might, I blew it, but anyway, um, uh, Burke could have done it, but anyway, it is um, uh, it is a part of scripture. It can instruct you, even if it's not prescriptive for the Gentile-led church age. So let's go through it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, exactly what we're seeing in the book of Romans, okay, and our Lord Jesus our Lord. So he's saying grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and in the uh, and in Jesus our Lord. Okay? We need to grow in the knowledge of that. Okay, he says, verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Remember what he just said in verse uh, 3 back here. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. I'm sorry, verse 2. 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Go back and read this again. As his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. They're giving you the same concepts, okay? Verse four, by which that uh, um, uh, godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given uh, to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, okay? In other words, someday we're going to be glorified, we're going to be like him, we're going to partake in what he possesses. Right now we're fallen, we're earthly, we don't partake in it in the fullest sense, other than the sense that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and we're on the road to heaven, okay? But he says that we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he goes on, verse 5 through 9 is what he builds this, this, this train of thought that we should pursue as believers in the Lord. But also for this very reason, the things that he just said, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. And what did Paul say right here? He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character hope. He's telling us how to live in a way that will produce certain things. So he says, but also for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance. You can see it's it's a more detailed uh, stepping ladder of exactly what Paul is speaking about in Romans, okay? To perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So each one of those is a step. And if you do this, you will result in that. If you result in this, you will then result in that. Each step takes you up the lane. And he says then, verse eight, four, if you, if these things are yours and abound, if you've done that, if you followed this progression and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be barren. You'll have a good knowledge of it. You'll be grounded in it, and you will also be fruitful, in other words, okay? And then he says something in verse 9, which is almost horrifying. He says, for he who lacks these things, think of somebody that has come to Christ. He's been saved by Jesus Christ, right? Somebody that you know in a church, and they don't go to Bible studies, and they sit and they dwell on the world all the week long, and they're watching these things on TV, and they're getting themselves eaten up by these things. Eventually, they're going to stop going to church. They're going to stop looking to the Lord. And here's what happens. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, he's completely forgotten he's saved. Imagine that a person could forget that they are saved. God has not forgotten. He knows that they're saved and they will never lose that salvation. But you can actually come to the point of because you fail to progress in Christ, you actually just walk away and you say, I don't know if I was ever saved or not. Imagine coming to that point in your life. If you are willing to simply keep applying the word of the Lord to your life, if you're willing to keep your eyes on Jesus and to stop looking at the things of the world in a way which affects you, I'm not telling you not to look at the things of the world. It's, I've said, you need to be apprised of what's going on around you. But if you allow these things to affect you, and to take your mind off of the Lord, you will eventually walk away from the Lord. Maybe not intentionally, 
but the world has gained control over you. <clears throat> and you'll forget that you were cleansed from your old sins. What a terrible place to be. Anyway, so Paul is going through this progression of thought, just as Peter is in 2 Peter 1, verses uh, 2 through 9, I think it was. So that was verse 5-4. The previous verse noted that tribulation produces perseverance. From that point, perseverance produces character. Some translations here state experience instead of character. It is true that experience is gained, but that is not the sense of what's being relayed. Experience can result in admitting defeat as much as it can result in obtaining strength. In other words, experience is something that you gain one way or another. You, uh, if you uh, stub your toe, you will gain experience in stubbing your toe. But if you don't learn to not stub your toe again, then you haven't progressed at all. So the word experience is not what Paul is trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us to gain character. Character in that sense would be to pick up your foot over the rock instead of kicking into the rock every time you go there. All right. It, you, when you gain something, when you learn through experience, but you don't change your who you are, yet your behavior, then you haven't gained there, the two thoughts. You have experienced it, but you haven't gained anything out of that experience. And so you will continue to experience the same thing without gain. That's what I'm trying to say to you. Isn't that the uh, definition of insanity? Insanity. <laughs> doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. You're not going to get different results. And that is what he's saying here. Character is getting away from the insane. It's saying, I'm going to develop. That's Thank you. That's what I was looking for. And I'm going to read that again. It is true that experience is gained, but that is not the sense of what's being relayed. Experience can result in admitting defeat as much as it can in result in obtaining strength. Experience, therefore, is not at all what is intended by this train of thought. Rather, perseverance is the experience, and it results in character. When one perseveres, they will be grounded with fortitude and with strength. The more that you persevere, the more fortitude and strength that you're going to have, okay? It's like going out into the battlefield. The more that you persevere in the battlefield, the more fortitude and strength you should be able to develop in that environment, okay? And if you don't, well, you know, some people get shell shock and they have to leave the front, but people that are soldiers that know how to handle themselves as soldiers will gain that experience. Once this character is developed, it leads to hope. Hope is that great virtue which says, what I long for will be realized, right? I've got a hope that the rapture is going to happen. That's what I long for. And my hope is that that will be realized. It's not something dubious. It's not something that maybe this is going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen. Now, there are one of two possibilities. Either this is not true, right? This is not the word of God and it's not true. Or secondly, I am reading this wrong, okay? And you need to ask yourself both of these. Is this the word of God? Well, if you haven't been studying it, how would you know? You say, well, my mom told me it's the word of God. So what? If you have not gotten yourself into it, if you haven't convinced yourself by reading it and going through the motions and saying, this really is the word of God, you don't have the real grounding that you need, okay? Now, the second one you should do, and I tell you this in classes all the time, when we get done with class, you should go home and verify, verify what Charlie has said because I could be completely wrong about the rapture. We go over to R.C. Sproul's church and he's gonna say, well, rapture, snapture, there's no such thing, right? We're ushering in the kingdom. And you have to be willing to study the Bible and take in context what it says and say, does this teach that doctrine or not, okay? And if you're not willing to do that, 
then you really don't have a hope. All you have is something that says, well, I was told that the rapture is true. And so I'm, I, you need to make sure that what you believe is correct and that it is based on the source, which is the word of God. If you can firmly avow that, then you're in the good, you're in the sweet spot, okay? And the reason why I say that is because I can't tell you how many emails a week I get on the rapture. I, I can't tell you how many. Not every week, but some weeks I'll get 50 of them, right? And it'll be people that I've been a Christian since 1952, and, you know, I'm still confused about the rapture. How many verses are there in the Bible about the rapture? Actually, no. There's, there's what? You've got one Th uh, Corinthians chapter 15. You've got 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You've got some Old Testament pictures, which may or may not be, depending on who you are and, you know, what they say. Well, that, that doesn't mean that, you know. But in the end... There are only a few verses really about the rapture. There's none in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I'm sorry if, if you're looking and uh, no man knows the day or the hour. That is not a rapture verse. But there are not a lot of verses about the rapture, and yet there are hundreds, if not thousands, of videos on the rapture, right? Everybody's got their thing, and so they watch these things, and they get themselves all confused. Pick this book up and read it. That's what you need to do. When you watch a lot of videos, and this guy's saying this, and this guy's saying this, and this guy's, and everybody's back and forth saying these things about the doctrine of the rapture, which is so clear and so concise and so brief, there should not be this confusion. And yet people are confused because they're not willing to start here. You know, this, this book has a beginning, okay? It's not in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it doesn't end in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It begins here in Genesis, and it goes all the way through. And as you read it, you're going to continue to grow and you're going to develop in this word. Then you're not going to get stuck in a single discipline of the Bible, prophecy, or, you know, sin. Some people dwell on sin all the time. That's, um, uh, what, what is it, homartiology, okay? You've got all these different doctrines in the Bible. And there are people that focus on just one doctrine to the exclusion of everything else. This book is a book of doctrine, not a book of a doctrine, okay? So... Having said that, this is the kind of thing that Paul is speaking about here, is being grounded. If you are grounded in the word, if you are grounded in what it says, then you will produce that perseverance, okay? Let me read this again here. Once the character is developed, it leads to hope. Hope is that great virtue which says, what I long for will be realized. And the only way you're going to get that is by knowing this word, not by listening to somebody's evaluation of it until you've checked out what they've said, because like I said, there are 15,000 different videos and every one of them will look at the rapture in a different way. Read it yourself, think about it, and take it in the full context of the Bible, okay? I will give you my opinion. I do every single week. And if somebody emails me, I give them my opinion. But you are the ones that are responsible for picking this word up and reading it from beginning to end. That's why I'm so happy. The guy I read in the Prophecy Update two weeks ago, my friend Brian out in Arizona, he says, I'm going to read this word. And he did. And the first thing he did when he finished it was he started reading it again. And I bet you he will have that pattern now for the rest of his life. He will read the book continuously. Mm -hmm. But if you don't read it one time, you're never going to read it two times. That's a fact. If you don't read it one time, you'll never read it three times. You've got to get into the Word and start reading it. So um, let's see here. When we have this hope, which I just explained, we have internal surety. The thought from Hebrews 12, too, which I've quoted twice tonight, carries us through this entire process. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, okay? As you're reading the Bible, how does this point to Jesus? 
And as long as you're willing to do that, as long as you're willing to say, I know that Jesus is in here, he is going to come out. Okay, we may make some errors. Well, somebody may misevaluate this first, and then you, oh, I see where I got that wrong. But in the end, if you're saying, I am going to look for Jesus in this book, he is going to show himself to you, 100%. Okay, he is going to reveal himself to you. All right, when we look unto him, we can glory in our tribulations, thus producing perseverance. Our eyes are fixed and our thoughts are steadfast. When we persevere, we develop character and our convictions become evident as we continue to look to him. Once his character is grounded, our eyes look to him in hope of all that he has promised. Truly, there's no greater assurance than that which comes through an intent and unwavering gaze on the Lord. If you're gazing at the rapture, if that's what you're doing, that's why, I, what do I do? Every single prophecy update, I say the same thing. Don't watch a lot of prophecy updates. I say, watch, read your Bible, don't I? I'm giving a prophecy update and I'm trying to tell people there's something better than what you're watching right now. Right. And you would think that people would learn, but it doesn't seem like that. It seems like people just keep going and watching 25 different prophecy updates a week and they don't mature in Christ. They have their eyes on the rapture. To them, the rapture is a thing. It is something to focus on when the rapture is just a part of what Christ is doing. If we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, then we understand that the rapture is something that leads to Jesus. It's not an independent entity, but people are so fixed on the fact that there is a rapture that they forget that the rapture has a purpose. And that purpose came by being saved by Jesus Christ, and it results in us being in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's right. The rapture is not a thing that we focus our eyes on, but that's what people do when they watch Prophecy Updates. They focus their eyes on an issue and not on the Lord, and that is the wholly wrong attitude to have about your theology. Focus on the Lord, and all of these other disciplines will fall into their proper place. Sin has a proper place in our understanding of the Lord. We're going through it in Leviticus. If you don't see that in these Leviticus sermons, I don't think you're ever going to see it. But sin has a proper place in our understanding of the Lord. All right? Angelology. That's especially a cat angel. It's the study of angels. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole discipline. Catholicism has entire branches that focus only on angelology. That's all they do is they study... And how much is in the Bible? In all honesty, how much is in the Bible about angels? There's not a lot about angels. But there are, I, there are people I know that that is their whole focus in this. They email me about angel stuff all the time. Look what I found about this angel, right? Yes, it is a single discipline. Christ is in charge of the angels or he's working for the angels. Which is it? Right? Go to the book of Hebrews and see what it says about the angels. He's greater than the angels. Go to the book of Hebrews and see what it says about the law of Moses. He's greater than the law of Moses. It, what does it say about the Aaronic priesthood? He's the greater high priest. Everything that is in the book of Hebrews, you could use the term. What, what's the term you want to use to describe Hebrews? Better. He says better. I say greater. Greater <laughs> than. When you read the book of Hebrews, just think of those two words. We'll go with Burks today just because he's such a nice guy. Better than, okay? While you're reading the book of Hebrews, just think of those two words, better than. And it will make sense to you. If not, you're reading it and you think, I just don't think I understand what he's talking about. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes. When you read it, it's very confusing. But if you say, oh, I understand the key. He's speaking about life under the heavens or life under the sun. That's it. Life under the heavens is devoting your life to the Lord. 
focusing on the things of the Lord, and life under the sun is focusing on the things of the earth. Oh boy, there's money. I'm going to make money. And it's a futile, vain existence. But when you say, I'm going to make money for this purpose, which will serve God, then all of a sudden the money has value. And when he makes these contrasts, it makes it sound like he's insane because he says one thing and then he says exactly the opposite here. And you think, what's he talking about? He's saying that this has value, this has no value. And all of a sudden Ecclesiastes makes all the sense in the world. When you read Hebrews, better than, okay, or greater than. Okay, um, and that, that is what will help you to understand that Christ is the focus, not the angelology, not the law of Moses, not the rapture. Those are disciplines within scripture, all of them coming under the authority of Christ, okay? So, um, First John, or uh, Peter, uh, 119, we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure. More sure. Absolutely. People go in the Bible, and uh, that's another thing they do. They just focus on prophecy. There are some people that only focus on prophecy, not even just the rapture, just prophecy. What is this? The prophetic word more sure. It's written. It says amen on it. We don't need to worry about all of those things. We can study them. We can look at how the timelines are going to develop. But when you start making chart after chart after chart after chart, trying to figure out Isaac Newton did that. He made tons of writings about the timeline of the world and everything. Guess what? It doesn't make any difference. Unless you're focusing on Christ, all of that is just, it's Kabbalism, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's getting into numerology and all of these little side disciplines. He is the center of all of it. And as long as you have that in your eyes, everything else will make sense. But when you get off on these tangents, that's how you get... These poor Hebrews roots movement, they, these people get sucked into that stuff. They have taken their eyes off the Lord and they're back in where he's better than he's better than the law. But they're back on the law because they've forgotten that he's the better than. OK, let's go on. Life application. <clears throat> either the Bible is true or it's not. I talked about that about five minutes ago. It's either true or it's not. We have to determine that. It's yes, mom told me the Bible is true. And so I believe that. But unless you are willing to check it out for yourself, because guess what? People over in uh, Saudi Arabia tell their children, the Quran is God's word, right? Who are you going to believe? Unless you read the Quran, unless you actually read it for yourself, you will never know if it is the truth or not, okay? And then if you're told and you say, I'm going to come at this with the presupposition that it is the word of God, you are going to end believing that it is the word of God. When Usama Dakhto can stand right here and he can show you every single contradiction better than any Islamic scholar on this planet, he can explain it better than they can because he's looked at it from an outside perspective and he has said, this does not match up with this. Unless you're willing to do that with these different books of the, how do you know? But once you study the Quran and you find out it really is not the word of God, well, I need to find out, is there a word of God? And eventually you're going to come to this book and you're going to read it, hopefully. And you'll say, wow, this well, is the word of God. Here's a life application for you. When you're arguing or somebody's arguing with you about your faith, a bad um, defense is my mother told me. Yeah, oh, that's a very <laughs> bad defense. My mom told me. That's that's a terrible defense. My mom told me and I checked it out might be okay. But, yeah. So, uh uh, either the Bible is true or it's not, and there is no middle ground. If it is, then it is all sufficient. And listen to this. It is all sufficient to lead you to an understanding of what is necessary to be reconciled to God. If it is true, then it will accomplish that task. No matter what happens in your life, hold fast to the word. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus and have faith that your hope will be realized by the God of truth. After you've verified that this is the word of God. I will tell you it is. I believe it is with all of my heart and my soul. But you need to check this out for yourself. You need to read it and you need to come to an understanding. And the only way you're going to do that is by simply picking it up and reading it. Okay? Reading little parts of it about prophecy or about the rapture and spending all of your week on that is never going to get you any closer to an understanding if this is the true word or not. All right? You say, oh, I already believe that it's the word of God. And so I, I'm just going to focus on the rapture. What a small existence you have in Christ. What a small life you are living for him. I, I, I mean that with all of my heart. I'm so glad for people. I had one lady email this week. <clears throat> I won't say which one because I don't have permission, but she's somebody that attends online with us. And she says, I've listened to the Romans Bible study several times already. The one that we did last week. She says, uh, she said, um, uh, hang on. She said something to me and it just went out of my head. Um, uh, <clears throat> oh, she's listening to the Leviticus sermon. She said, um, they, it never made sense to me. Do you remember what I said during one of the um, opening parts to a uh, Leviticus sermon within the past couple of weeks? The introduction was that people will read the book of Genesis and they're very excited. Mm -hmm. And then they get to the middle half of Exodus and it starts to get tedious because it's repeating all of the instructions right. of building the tabernacle. And I said, people will get through that really quickly. And they'll think, well, it'll get better. And they turn to Leviticus and they read the first chapter and they say, oh. And they turn to the second page and they say, it says the same thing. And they close it and they never read the Bible again. Or they go to the Psalms or the Beatitudes and that's where they spend the rest of their life. And she said, I did that. I got to Leviticus and she says, I couldn't understand it. And so I've been, I went right to the Psalms. And it's exactly what I said happened, okay? So she emailed me that and she says, I'm so thankful that I'm now understanding that the Bible points to Jesus, even in the book of Leviticus. I'm understanding that now. It's tedious. It's difficult. It takes a lot of brain power, but I'm so thankful that she is willing to learn the Bible. She's willing to do that. She's got, she's hungry for the word because of it. That's where we need to be in the word and we need to be hungry for it. Because if not, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. People's lives, how they get along without this word, I don't know. I really don't. If your foundation is weak, yeah, if your foundation is weak, it's what Jesus said about building the house on the sand or on the rock. This is the rock as far as I'm concerned in my life. This shows me Jesus, and he is my rock. And so, I, oh, morning, noon, and night, I, I just, it's all I think about. It's the most wonderful word. Okay, let's go on. Um, verse 5-5. Five, five. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Yes, and very similar in New King James Version. I won't read it again. This verse leads us right back to verse 2. Paul has explained in sequence how we get to our hope and what causes us to rejoice in it. We are justified by our faith, which allows us to actually glory in our tribulations, right? We have faith, and so we can say, I know that these troubles have a purpose. Because if not, oh, I... I I don't know what I would have done if I never met Jesus. You know, all the people I've met in the world, and I've ended up at the hospital how many times in the past two years, and I think, what do you tell them? Well, I'm sure you're going to get better. You know? uh, I, there's just, oh, man, I don't know. I'm so thankful for the Lord. Okay, so um, some translations. Oh, I'm, next verse, Charlie. Um, let's see here. We are justified by our faith, which allows us to actually glory in our tribulations. This, in turn, produces perseverance, character, and hope. 
It is this hope and the sequence of how it came about that Paul tells us will keep us from disappointment. A hope which is falsely directed will only lead to shame or disappointment, right? Think of the Quran. That's where their hope is. They have their hope in what the Quran says. Will that lead to a happy ending? No. No. If you believe what the Christian believes, that Jesus is the word of God and that this is his word that tells us of him, then we know that the Quran cannot save anybody and that the people that are following that wicked book are going to end up in hell, right? It will end in disappointment, okay? Same thing. It says, um, uh, where was it? It will keep us from disappointment and um, will lead to shame or disappointment. Well, actually, if you put your faith in something like the Quran, it's going to lead to both of them, shame and disappointment, because the Lord's going to say, I never knew you, right? So that's shame and disappointment. You're not getting your 72 virgins, okay? <laughs> whatever. It's, it will, anything, whatever it is, whether it's, it's uh, uh, you know, don't want to use them in this example, but suppose somebody came to America and they had a job, and uh, the boss pr promised them a green card after five years, right? Uh -huh. Just suppose you knew somebody like that, and you didn't do it, right? Where have you put your hope? In a person that is not willing to fulfill his duties. He's not willing to stand on the word that he spoke with his own mouth. Now, if you stick with that person, whose fault is it, right? You give him one chance, you might give him two chances because you need the job, but eventually you say, this is going nowhere. And then you say, I'm going to leave. Okay, that's what you do. Because if you keep thinking this hope is going to change, you're the one that's deluding yourself. Same thing with a, a, going into a false religion. You find out that this isn't working, and what do you do? Well, I'm going to go meditate for 22 hours under the Bodha tree instead of 21. That'll get me to enlightenment. Whatever it is, there's a point where you have to say this is ridiculous and it's not getting me anywhere. The Bible will never lead us down that path. It will never. The hope is there, it is sure. And we have a good end coming for us. You know, when I was um, I was um, preparing the Jonah sermons, and Robert Young, I was using Young's literal uh, translation of the Bible for several verses, which were key to understanding the last chapter of Jonah, right? And so I wanted to know more about Robert Young. I've got his uh, original concordance. It's falling apart. It's this big volume that he did a concordance, just like Strong's concordance, but it's Young's literal concordance of the Bible. Right? I've got that, and I treasure it. I don't open it often because every time I do, it starts to fall apart a little bit more. But I uh, uh, wanted to know a little bit more about him, and so I clicked onto Wikipedia, which had the life of Robert Young on there. And right at the top, they had a picture. Guess what the picture was? No, it was a picture of his gravestone. And I broke down and wept because I said, I'm going to see that man again. There's that gravestone is just a temporary thing. And I thought, he's gone. And everything that he did, I have in my hand and I can refer to it. And But I was actually crying there looking at that gravestone and not in, in tears of mourning. I was actually crying in tears of joy thinking, I'm going to meet that man again. And that grave there, which everybody looks at and says, that's the end of Robert Young. That's just a seed that's been planted, mm -hmm. right? Oh, my hair standing up all over my arms. That is the kind of hope that we have when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And when we understand that his word is true and that what he says is going to happen is. You get dis dis disappointed or depressed about what's going on around you. Just read Revelation 22. The book is written. If it's true, man, we've got some good times ahead, right? Okay. Um, so uh, let's see here. But Paul says that the hope that we have in Christ simply won't fail. 
we have the surety of what God, uh, surety of God, in that what He has promised us will come about. Writing to Timothy, Paul tells us of his convictions of this. He even, uh, even as he wrote from a prison, expecting his execution. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy. Let me take you there really quickly. 2 Timothy 1, 12, I think is what I said. Yeah, okay. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to be executed. He knew that he was being poured out as a drink offering. And he says, you know what? This ain't nothing. He has got it in his hands. And on that day, he is going to keep his promises to me. That is a sure sign of somebody that knows his Lord. The surety of our salvation and eternal blessing in the presence of God is not a misdirected fancy. And it is not a wasted use of our faith. It is as reliable as the evidence given. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The term poured out, which Paul uses, is from a word which is used to describe a liquid which is diffused as it's poured. It fills a vessel completely. This is the giving of the Holy Spirit by God. It is, according to Paul, a sealing, which is a deposit guaranteeing our future redemption. Does anybody know what verses that's in? Thank you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. As if you want to know, and this is another question that I got a couple times this week, and I included this in my uh, my comments to him. I'm going to read it to you now, and you think it through logically now. First, if God is God, can God make a mistake? No. No, it's impossible. If he's God, he's outside of time. Everything that happens within the bubble of time is known to him, and he cannot error in it. He's perfect. There is no change in him. He is God. He cannot make a mistake. So when something happens from God in the stream of time, it wasn't an error. Okay? Now think it through logically. What does Paul say? When you believe, here's what he says, Ephesians, in him, meaning Jesus, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 10, 14? 17. 10, 17. Thank you. Okay. So, um, in him, uh, where was it? In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You believed, you were sealed. That's what Paul says. And that's why I'm, we're going to go through this. This is another. I got several questions on baptism this week. Okay. And I said, don't, don't worry, we're going to be in chapter 6 very soon. We're almost uh, halfway through with a quarter of the way through chapter 5. And when we get to chapter 6, I'm going to go through baptism again. We're going to do what we did in the book of Acts, okay? So, understanding that. Where was I? 13. Sealed in, by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, that's right. In whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was given. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8 was given. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 was given. And none of them match, right? Which one do you use as prescriptive for your theology? None of them. If you use the book of Acts as prescriptive for your theology, you have departed from a proper understanding of the Word of God. Because the book of Acts is given for a purpose, and it's not to give us doctrine. It is not a book of doctrine in the sense that I am prescribing to you what you are to do with your life. That comes from the epistles. 
Paul's epistles give us doctrine. The law of Moses gave doctrine, okay? When you go to the book of Acts, it is there for a very specific purpose. It took us three years to get through it, and we understood that purpose when we were done with it. But it says in Ephesians 13, when you believed, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Is that doctrine? Yes, Paul yes, wrote it, he said it, it is either true or it's not true. If it is true, then what happens in all three of the uh, occasions of the book of Acts, which don't match that, have to be understood as descriptive verses for a specific purpose, which happened in redemptive history. We will talk about that when we go back in chapter 6 of Romans, okay? So, verse 14, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee he is the guarantee. We believed we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Certain things happen to a believer that possess the Holy Spirit. If those things do not happen, was the guarantee any good? No, no of course not. It was a, we would call it a crummy guarantee, okay? That means that God failed. He sealed somebody with the Holy Spirit. He didn't mean to do it. God cannot make a mistake. Everybody in here already agreed to that. And therefore, if God cannot make a mistake and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, then those things will come about. God did not make a mistake and he will not take back what he has done because it's a guarantee. A guarantee is a deposit. We'll talk about it really quickly. I've mentioned it a couple uh, classes ago, but I'll say it again. The word in Greek is erovon. It's used only three times in the New Testament, erovon. All three times it is speaking of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It is the exact same word, which never happens in the Bible, as the word erovon, which comes from the Hebrew, which is used only three times in the Bible, and it is only used in Genesis chapter 38, in the account of Judah and Tamar, okay? He slept with his daughter, she got pregnant, he didn't know it was her, he took the seal and cord and staff that belonged to him, and he gave it to her as a erovon, a guarantee, Okay, she what? Daughter-in-law. Daughter yes, a daughter, but daughter. It's yes, but daughter-in-law. Anyway, she now possesses the guarantee. It is hers. It is hers by right. She handed it back to him. She did not have to do it because he failed in his obligation. Okay, the story of Judah and Tamar is picturing the sealing of the Holy Spirit in believers. It is a guarantee. It cannot be taken back. It will not be taken back. Salvation is eternal. As it says in the book of Hebrews, the author of eternal salvation. So the point that I'm getting at with that little digression in the book of uh, Ephesians is that salvation is something that is guaranteed. And that is what Paul said. I am confident that to, when he wrote to Timothy, I'm confident that in the Lord that I have trusted, okay? And that's what we need to be. We need to be confident in our faith, okay? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it is a guarantee of our future redemption. When we are sealed with the Spirit, <clears throat> Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. We have received him, now we must allow him to have more of us. This comes through obedience, fellowship, study of his word, and so on. These things lead us to our hope, which is properly grounded. Okay, life application. We got time for another verse. Be filled with the Spirit. The moment you call on Jesus, you were sealed with him. Now allow him to fill you. Read and know your Bible, the word he authored for you to know God. Speak to him. Speak to him, God, through praise and prayer. Live in him and rejoice in what he has done and what he has promised to do for you. 
if you've believed, you've received, you are on the heavenly highway. Everything from that moment on falls under one of two categories, rewards or losses. That is it. You will not, there is now no, there is now no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There is judgment, but there is no condemnation. We are saved. We will never be unsaved. I hate to tell people that believe in this, you can lose your salvation. They're living in bondage or they're teaching bondage. Okay? It is not true. You are saved and you are saved once forever. Okay? But everything you do after that point will fall under the judgment seat of Christ where you will stand before him and he will either reward you or he will take away. You'll suffer gain or you'll suffer you will receive gain or suffer loss. And that's it. That is it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does everybody here receive Jesus as Lord? Okay, if you haven't, don't raise your hand. Do it. Um, let's see here. Verse 5, 6. Go ahead. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Wow, huh? Well, we could just stop there and just, oh, thank you, Lord. There will be three categories of man noted in the five verses from 5, 6 through 5, 10, all summed up in the concept of the ungodly. The first is in 5, 6 those who are without strength. Then sinners are noted in verse 5.8, and this is then followed up by enemies in 5.10. Paul is showing us that all categories from the top to the bottom need Christ, all of them. He begins with four. This is an affirmation of what was stated in verses 5.1 through 5, okay? Or yeah, 5.1 through 5.5. Everything that he said, he is now stating as an affirmation. One, we have been justified by faith. Two, we have peace with God. Three, we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Three, we hope in the glory of God. This came from the process of tribulations, perseverance, and character. And four, the last verse we looked at, we have God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a logical progression. He is saying four in order to substantiate that all of that is leading to what he says in verse five. The use of four introduces the affirming reasons why these are so. The first is that something occurred while we were without strength. The word translated as without strength indicates one that is feeble, okay? We couldn't do anything about our state. We were feeble in it. It was, as it were, a disease which afflicted us. It is an apt comparison because sin is a disease which affects our ability to proceed in a right relationship with God. The disease must be treated before we can proceed, and it was. When we were without strength to save ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. What a marvelous thing. I mean, what an absolutely marvelous thing that God has done for us. And before we go on, I realize now, because they usually show up two or three minutes late, and so I didn't think of it at the time, but Paul isn't here. We'll make sure we pray for him at the end of the class, because I I don't know if he's okay or not. But um, uh, anyway, the ungodly here that he speaks about in verse six, the ungodly here is a comparison to those who are without strength, okay? They're ungodly, they're without strength. The intent then is that Christ died for the very people that we were. We were weak and unable to accomplish the task. So much for the Hebrew Roots movement where we're gonna work our way up to heaven. We're gonna set aside the grace of Christ and we're gonna work our way to heaven. It is as clear as it can possibly be that Christ died in fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He embodies the law. He was nailed to the cross, and thus the law is nailed to the cross in picture because of him. Right? That's the end of it. It is done. He died for us while we were were ungodly. Why would we want to go back to that? 
why would anybody want to do that? I don't understand it. Okay, so the implication is that he is godly and is making an exchange. And Paul will explain this as he continues. Think of all of these sacrifices we go through in the book of Leviticus. They're pointing to something. I am putting my hands on the, the head of this animal. I'm confessing my sins. My sin is being transferred to that animal. And then that animal is, life is taken, and something happens to each one of these animals. If it's the sin of the high priest, one thing happens to it. If it's a sin of the congregation, something. If it's my sin, something else. Something happens which is logical and orderly for every single one of them because they're all pointing to what Christ did for the high priest or for the lowest person in Israel. There is a process which is being pictured in what happens there. The detail is astonishing. It, it's simply astonishing. Anyway, life application. It is easy to forget the state that we were in after being saved for a time. I do it all the time. I think, oh boy, wow. And then I have to think, what was I like before? So people say, well, I want to forget my old life. I am exactly the opposite. I never want to forget who I was and the things I did. I never want to forget that. I want to remember it. I want to cling to it. Because if I forget where I was, I'm bound to end up back there. Anybody that thinks that they're too good to go back to where they were thinks too highly of themselves. We need to cling to the cross, and the only way that we're going to cling to the cross is understanding why the cross was necessary for our lives. I'm not clinging to my sin. I'm clinging to what my sin represented in my life. It represented the need for him to die. I never want to forget that. If people say that to me, I say I'm just the opposite. I never want to forget who I was. Wow, I don't want to be that person ever again, okay? Easy for us to forget we begin to develop in our walk and eventually we look around at those around us as, ooh, ungodly sinners who deserve God's wrath. And they do, don't get me wrong, they do deserve God's wrath, every one of them, but there is, it says, oh, I even go on. While this is true, we need to remember that this was once us. Instead of feeling superior to the sinner, we need to remember that we were in the same boat. We were given the lifeline and now we need to pass it on, okay, not hold it out of reach. And, um, that doesn't mean, once again, we have to. We can't be sappy Christians. Sappy Christians are the ones that sit in these liberal churches up in North Carolina and say, well, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, and so it's okay to be LGBTQ, LMNOP, right? That is not true. Christ wants them out of that. If they willingly reject the grace of Christ, they are going to get what they deserve. They are going to get it. If they, are think, if they think they are above the grace of Christ because of their status, that they don't need Christ's grace. They're going to get what they deserve, okay? So we, we don't want to be sappy Christians. At the same time, we want to understand that that was us and that we need to transmit that to other people. That's why I think even though sometimes we go out on the projects every Saturday, three of us in here and one that's watching online right now, but when we, uh, when we are out there in the projects, sometimes it's really, really tedious. Not every week is a, a great week, right? Is that true? Okay, right? There are times where we just go and we think we're not getting anywhere. You know, it's been three months and we're just not getting anywhere. But it also reminds us why we're out there and we just keep going because we know that it's the right thing to do. And all of a sudden something great will happen and we'll say, ah, now I remember why we're out here. We don't want to forget where we were, who we were, or what our job is. And when we sit and we just get into the little theologian mode and we sit in a, uh, a classroom and we study the Bible, sometimes we don't go out and tell people what we've learned. The point of being educated and, and is one, to grow and mature in Christ, but it's also to be able to tell other people about Christ. 
Okay, so one, don't be sappy and say, you know, be, oh, well, everybody is okay and blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, don't be tolerant mm -hmm. with sin. And Lord knows we get some wacky rebuttals wow. while we're out there. Wow, I'm telling you what. Yeah, you, you can get, and one thing that uh, we never want to do is argue our theology with no. people. Never argue your theology. Just tell them what you believe, and as long as you are being the example that you should be, right? you're going to have this on Facebook, you're going to have it with family. I know that you go through that with certain family members. I've got a family member that I, I never argue with him about it. I've told him what Christ means. I've told him the significance of it. And as long as he sees that my life is consistent with what I told him, then there may be a time where he says, oh, you know, I really, I really want to know. I'm in a point in my life where I need to know this. If you argue, if I was to argue with him about this, it would just put up a wall that we would never, never get past. Never argue your theology with somebody. Tell them and then just be an example to them. The, the more that you get frustrated over somebody not receiving Christ, the more people are going to perceive that. And they're going to say that obviously it will become a perverse thing with them. They will start to defend why they shouldn't receive Christ. Don't be that way. Always just present Christ and then present yourself as a follower of Christ. Okay? Don't argue theology. We have time. First five, seven. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. I was taking out the garbage this morning. It's funny we're doing this first because I was saying that to myself just this morning. Because we played a song. You weren't here on Sunday, but we played a song um, called Blood Was the Price. And, uh, oh, it's a great song. Wow. Anyway, um, I was thinking of this verse, and I was singing that song. Um, it starts out with um, a, a guy saying that I live in this land. You know, I, I, uh, I have these freedoms, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but somebody had to die to give me that freedom. Something all of the liberal colleges in this nation seem to have forgotten is that there has to be a sacrifice in order for there to be security. And he said blood was the price. Someone died. It was his supreme sacrifice, right? And then the next train of, I don't know what you call it, refrain or whatever it is. The next one obviously took it from that to Calvary. And he said blood was the price. It was the supreme sacrifice, and Jesus died for me, thank God, for Calvary, right? So the point is that um, there is a cost for our redemption, okay? What's that? What artist? Um, I don't know. It's uh, I, I don't know. I'll have to, it's on my little clicker thing, which you never see because I only use it when you're not here. But um, anyway, yeah, it's. Uh, I'll send it to you. Maybe I can make an MP3 file and send it to you. Or just give me the name. So, did you have the uh, words? Everything? Uh, it, it, they were very basic words, so you you you, you could learn them in about two seconds. I, I mean, I just gave you half of the song, and it was just off the top of my head. Great more in over ten of the new. I have to have. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, it, it was a very good song. Anyway, I'll see if I can get it to you. But um, where are we? Um, oh, this this verse. I was thinking about this verse this morning, and here we are in verse five seven. So the thought is now presented is given to us to show a contrast between how we as humans are normally expected to act in comparison to how our Lord, in fact, did act. We were just presented with the truth that when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In continuation of that thought, we have a repetition of four. He said four, and then he says four again. It is introduced to offset what we've just seen concerning Christ. Christ died for the ungodly, but what is the normal and expected action of fallen man? In him, we see the truth that it would be the extreme exception. Scarcely, he says, for a righteous man will one die. 
A righteous man is someone who we see as upright and obedient to the laws he encounters. A righteous man, if any, is the one who expects that he will walk on the golden streets. Everyone looks to him as the model and example of what we should also obtain. What would be the point of dying for such a man? We have no intimacy with him. We merely see his act and conduct and his conduct, and we may wish to emulate it. But the giving of our life for his would be self-defeating. If he will somehow miss the mark and will not walk on that golden avenue, then how much less of a chance would we have? Rather, he will die, and I will do my best to emulate him before I do so as well. Paul continues, yes, perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. We look around us at those we love, those we care for, and those we live our lives with in a close and personal manner. Among these people are what we might term really good guys. They're amicable, they're friendly, they're loving of others, they're honest, they're without pretense, and so on. They are the people who lead as the example for others to be the best that they can be. Their loss would make the world a less better place, and we would always regret it if we could have interceded for them when we didn't. Perhaps from time to time, someone would dare to die for one such as this. And so we have the contrast set, and which will be explained in the coming verse. Christ died for the ungodly when we would fail to die for the righteous and most probably fail to do so even for the good. What manner of beings are we? And more so, what manner of Lord do we serve? How could there be such a contrast between the two? Life application. If you're a saved believer in Jesus Christ, would you jump on a grenade for a group of criminals who were intent on killing you? Each of them bears God's image and without another chance to hear the good news, they will be eternally condemned. You, on the other hand, are on the highway to heaven, right? Which death actually makes more sense from God's perspective? Okay, verse 5-8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wonderful word, but, is introduced. But, one, in contrast to those who are without strength. Two, in contrast to those who are ungodly. Three, in contrast to those who would scarcely die for a righteous man. And four, in contrast to those who might dare to die for a good man. But God, the action is taken by the Creator. He is the one above those low and base souls represented in categories one through four, right? One, he is the source of all strength. Two, he is God and therefore the wellspring of all godliness. Three, he is the standard of all righteousness. And four, goodness is defined by how closely it reflects his infinite goodness. Those are all things that we can't deny if we believe that God is God. They're all absolutely undeniable. He is the great God who spoke the universe into existence and who could speak it out of existence with the same authority. Thus, infinitely wise and splendid is God. He demonstrates his own love towards us. While we rebel, reject, mock, and curse him, and we see people do it all the time, all the time, every day, if you're on Facebook for five minutes, you see people doing it. He imparts an eternal stream of love in our direction. The verb demonstrates is written in the present indicative active tense. It is right now, it is a fact, and it is ongoing. 
The explanation of the word is as relative today as it was that the moment the ink flowed from the scribe's pen as Paul dictated to him. Okay, it's ongoing and it will never change. He demonstrates this action toward us. What is coming is available to whomever the statement applies. In Paul's mind, it applies to all human beings descended from Adam. It is the get well card from a loving creator to his sick children. And it tells us the remedy which will cure our ills. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Surely will one die for a righteous man and for, or I'm sorry, scarcely will one die for a righteous man and for a good man somebody might consider dying. Oh, but God sent his own beloved son to die for a world full of sinners. Christ Jesus, the only human being born without sin and the only person ever to meet the righteous requirements of God's holy law, this Christ Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. The remedy is given and the choice is now ours. So life application. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The deed is complete when we accept it and its effects are final and they are eternal. But the memory shouldn't be final. Forgiven, yes, but forgotten, no. That's what I was talking about with me a minute ago. We need to remember that we were lost so that we can empathize with those who still are. Let us not think so highly of ourselves that we forget that one much much higher than us, that he died, not just for us, but for those who come after us as well. Okay? We better stop there because we have just a couple more minutes left. But that is the God that we serve that would be willing to do that. And I know that my words here do not even come close to honoring what Christ did for us. I don't think that as uh, the, the song, The Love of God says, if every person on earth were a scribe by trade and if the skies above were of parchment made and if the every stock a quill every stock a quill and the every sea was made of ink if every, if we were to write the love of god above we would drain the ocean dry I know I'm missing it, but you get the point. We, we could write with that quill all of the ink out of the oceans on that parchment in the sky, and it would fail to describe the love of God, which is in the verse we just looked at. That's where we are with Jesus Christ. What cross, a great God. On the cross, he even saved that guy. He was dying there beside him, you know, showing he had love for the sinner. Had love for the sinner, the guy right next to him, just by a simple act of faith. Because if you look in the book of Matthew, they were both reviling Christ at one time. Right. In the book of Luke, he obviously got a change of heart when he realized what was going on. And he said, <laughs> yeah. you know, so even in the last few minutes of his life, a man came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Burke, you better close us in prayer today. Pray loud because this thing kind of fades in and out if you don't. Okay. And remember Paul, please. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truths of your word that, that you did love us. You do love us and you love all mankind and that you died for everybody, but especially those who did. We thank you for that. And we do encounter uh, people that reject you and help us to be loving toward them and remembering what we were before. And we have people like Paul and others that are in need of a physical touch from you and we ask that you would apply that and uh, help us to be thankful for 
what you give us and our opportunities. May we use them to glorify you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby. Oh, wow. Oh, oh. Oh, I don't want to. No, it's my back. I just, I'm fine. Let's see. Let me back this thing up here. Uh, break. There we go. Uh, okay, there we go. Have a wonderful week. We love you guys. We'll see you later. Take care. Okay. Oh, I got something in my throat. I have just been choking. It's dry or something, but water, drinking water here always makes it worse, and I don't know why that is. Just let me know. Send me an email, and um, uh, what I want to do is I want to make sure I can. You want Well, that would be fine. But the main thing is that I want to send you. I, you need to let me know what you want. To it's your way, and so I can send you Baz if you want. I got a million. No, we're gonna write. We're writing our As long as I have that, then you email it to me, and I'll, I'll look it over, and then I'll email it back to you one time, and then from there we just need to set a date and. and that'll be it. There's nothing difficult about this. Right. Very simple. No, I don't place. think there is either. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, you pick the place if you want. You no, we want to just probably come yeah. here. And oh, that'd be yeah. fine. Okay. On some Saturday, just he, I, and you. It'd be wonderful. Just text yeah. All right. Four we'll of us, actually. Yeah. No, no problem at all. That sounds wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Because we got to put God at the top. You got that right. So. All right.